You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Alan Alda. This program originally aired in 2005. This archive audio is clipped at the beginning. We apologize. And he just stared at me for a while. And he, he said, how, how do you know that? He said, oh, I did many of them on MASH. See? This is one of the things, this is what my real sickness was, is that this guy is getting ready to disembowel me. I'm going to see if I can make him laugh. And if the fact is, that was the first, the end-to-end anastomosis was the first operation I learned about on MASH. And it was one they had invented to do in Korea during the war. And I'd read all about it. And I used to operate on these dummies. And I would do this end-to-end anastomosis. The doctor who was going to operate on me had watched MASH when he was in high school. So the two of us were coming to this from a fictional perspective. And now we were going to do the real thing. So he says to me, now, I want you to know that if you want, we have good equipment here in this hospital. The hospital is the dingiest thing I've ever seen. There was a guy over on the other bed who I found out the next day, this guy had a knife wound in his stomach, which he had done to himself because he was arrested by the police and he figured out if he stabbed himself, they'd have to take him to the hospital and he could arrange with his girlfriend to have a car waiting outside the hospital, which he did. And while they were taking care of me, he snuck out and got away. This is the emergency room I'm in. So the doctor says, if you want, we can try to get a plane. Get, if you want, we can get you to Santiago where the hospitals are bigger. But I have to tell you that our airport is fogged in. And if you wait for the fog to lift, you may not make it. And I said, get the knife and I'll do it myself. Um, you know, I mean, if he knows how, if he had a pen knife and he thought he knew how to do anybody, I was really in pain. I wanted it to be over. And I realized, you know, I might not wake up from this. So I called over the producer of the Scientific American Frontier Show and I said, I want you to tell some things to my wife, to Arlene, and to my children and grandchildren. And he said, Oh, I better get a pencil. So <laughs> it, was all, it, was, it was so wonderful about this. It was like very matter of fact, you know? <laughs> I said, I might not be here later, so I want you to give a message to them. Right away, I'll get a pencil. Anyway, so, so he wrote down these really pedestrian things I had to say. I love you, and I know that you'll take care of the kids. You know, I just wanted her to know that I was thinking of her and, that, and my kids and my grandkids. And then I called him back, and I said, I didn't say that so well. Let me say it again. I said it even worse the next time. <laughs> so then they put the, the gas mask on me. So the good thing was I woke up from this. And I was so glad to be alive. That doesn't begin to describe it. And they didn't let me eat for a day or so. And the first thing they gave me was some very bland Chilean cheese. It was the most delicious thing I ever had on a salt cracker. I mean, to taste that cheese was, and and I understood it in these terms. It was the beginning of my life all over again. And now I celebrate a birthday on October 19th. Now, I've, this is, I've just celebrated the second year of my having been born again in Chile. 
And I was in the hospital for, I don't know, five days or something, and a couple more days, and I was just resting at the hotel. And then I, I went back to New York. And the whole time I was making notes on a piece I would write about this experience called Down in Chile, and really down in Chile, you know. And I just kept making notes. And the funny thing was, when you have that kind of anesthesia, it does something to your brain temporarily. And sometimes for several months, some people up to a year, they can't remember things very well. It hurts your memory a little bit. So I was having that trouble. So I had to write, every time I'd remember something about the operation or that evening, I would write it down on a piece of paper. And I had these little pieces of paper in my bathrobe and I'd walk around the apartment with them in my bathroom. Then I'd sit down in the chair with the laptop and I'd take out the papers and I'd write about the experience and about how step by step what happened and what it was like to wake up again to a new life it was the most extraordinary experience and what amazes me is that two years later now I'm still glad to be alive I'm still enjoying the taste of everything I'll give you an example the other night on the set of the West Wing we were working really late we'd been up since you know six in the morning or five in the morning and it was 10 o'clock at night and I was missing dinner with my friends they were at the restaurant and and I couldn't make it to the restaurant and I was laughing and joking with the other actors and one of them said well what are you so happy about what are you having such a good time for you're missing dinner I said I was supposed to be dead now <laughs> and that I mean that's just really how I'm, I'm facing these things and and once I started writing this thing that turned out to be a chapter in the book I started to go back and think about and write about my life from the earliest days, the earliest memories I have. And my memories go back very vividly and very far back to when I was two. And it really was, I think, an attempt to understand how I got through the the bizarre life that I had as a child and a boy and a young man, very strange life, how I got through those things and became whoever I became And this occurred to me as I was writing it. I didn't really understand why I was writing it. I thought I was telling entertaining stories. And what I realized, I think, was that I was trying to figure out what I was going to do about being alive because it was so interesting to me now to taste things so vividly. I didn't want to waste any minute of it. I wanted to really see with a little bit more clarity who I was and and how I got to be that way. So that's what was unusual about my life. It was in a theater very much like this that we would come to from the time I was born. I was traveling with my parents and I'd wake up on, or not even, before I would ever go to sleep, it'd be one o'clock in the morning and I'd be walking down the aisle of the railroad car and I could feel the, the roar of the train under my feet and I could feel that clacking sound that the trains made on the tracks. And the hand, the armrests of the seats were almost over my head. And I'd walk down this railroad car full of the burlesque company, the actors and the comics, the straight men, the chorus girls, the strippers, the talking women. Now, you may not have ever heard that term. A talking woman was somebody who could do lines. And she would be able to act in the sketches, and she didn't have to take off her clothes as much. So when a new woman came into the company, the comics would say, can she talk? (laughs) And it was like, if you could talk, that was a big deal, you know. But the rest of them, the acts ranged from having to take off all your clothes to having to take off only some of your clothes. And the talking women spent a lot of the show with their clothes on. And I would be two years old, standing in the wings, watching the strippers. 
And I'm watching, and the comics and the chorus goes. My father was a straight man, and he was very young. He started burlesque when he was about 18, and I think I was born when he was 22. He was a singer and a straight man. He was supposed to be a great straight man. They said he was one of the best in burlesque. And he would sing the opening number. He'd stand over here in the corner of the stage, and it would be lit about this well. You know, you wouldn't see him. And the chorus girls would come out, and they'd dance, sort of, and... And I remember one number that was, I, I don't remember seeing this number, but it was described to me by someone who was in the company uh, years later. That numbers would always have a theme. Like maybe it would be girls of all nations. And he would sing girls of all nations, you know. And they would parade around and kind of dance. But they would be dressed up as bananas and pineapples and things like that. But then they did this one, one number that I heard about where it was a civil war extravaganza with a patriotic theme and they were dressed sort of in civil war outfits but it's a burlesque show you know so at the end of the number the spotlight hits the American flag and the flag has an electric fan on it and the flag is waving and the girls rip open their tops and show their breasts and salute (laughs) and I'm in the wings watching this Burlesque was a, it was a very interesting thing because it was at once bawdy and innocent. And often, couples would come together. It wasn't like it became in the 50s and later where it was just a raunchy thing for men to watch uh, under their raincoats. It was... (laughs) However, it was creepy in the audience too. Some of the strippers told me that they... They saw worse things happening in the audience than were happening on stage. But it was an innocent time. The humor was raunchy, but it was all double entendre, and there was an innocence about that. In a way, there were by far fewer coarse words said on stage than you now hear at 8 o'clock on television. You know, so the times were much gentler, even though the women got naked in the strip, and it was an attempt to be as erotic as it could be. There was still something innocent about it. The chorus girls made me their mascot. They used to take me up to their dressing room. And I was, you know, they liked this little boy. I mean, it was a chance to to mother a two-year-old. So they'd take me up and they'd comb my hair and they'd talk, you know, very sweetly to me. And then they'd say, okay, Allie, we have to change our clothes now. Turn your back. So I'd stand with my face against the wall where their costumes were hanging, their silk costumes, and their silk costumes would be in my face and I could smell the perfume and the sweat, and behind me, I hear them slipping on and off their clothing. Now, you may not think that a three-year-old would really think anything of this. You get it, even at three. It's really, I mean, when they, my parents thought, oh, he's a little boy, the innocence of youth, he doesn't know what's happening. I was really upset when I found out that women walked around with their clothes on. (laughs) So my father got out of burlesque and got into nightclubs. And he was touring in a show called Fun for Your Money, a really corny show. They would start it with a musical number, Fun for Your Money, we'll give it to you. You know, and they'd throw dollar bills at the audience while they sang, fake dollar bills. And... uh, (laughs) They used to do the show. We lived for a while in a little two-room apartment 
my mother, my father, and I above the dance floor, and you could hear them playing the dance music all night until like four or five in the morning through the floorboards. And they play Brazil, and the people would be dancing and drinking and smoking. And the show was over at midnight. And one night, my mother was upset because my father wasn't back yet. And it was maybe one or two in the morning. And he should have been home hours ago. So I was six, and she was lonely. And we were playing cards together. We would play gin rummy. See, I had like a. Early in my life, I was like an adult. I'd play gin rummy. I drank beer with the comics. <laughs> we used to get on the floor and shoot craps, you know. So here's the thing about my mother. My mother was mentally ill. She was really psychotic. She was schizophrenic and paranoid. And my father came in late this night. And she right away accused him of sleeping with other women. I, you know, even then at six, I understood he was working with half-naked women. It wasn't crazy to think that maybe he, he, he was doing something suspicious. So she accuses him of it, and he says, don't be silly, don't be crazy. And she accuses him again, and this time, you know, more forcefully. And he said, no, and he says, now he's getting impatient. And now she lunges at him. She picks up a paring knife, and you son of a bitch, and she goes to plunge it in his face. Now this is crazy. And I scream at them to tell them to stop. And he wrestles the knife out of her hand and it falls on the floor. And I picked it up and I, I rammed it into the kitchen table so it couldn't be used again. Six years old. So then a few weeks later, we're still in the same little apartment. The show was playing in this nightclub for a long time. And I was, we were at dinner and I was playing with the silverware and the silverware tray. And I found a paring knife with a bent point. And I said, look, Mommy, remember this knife? And she said, what, 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 about, what about it? And I said, remember when, when you wanted to stab Daddy? And she said, oh, don't be silly. I love your Daddy. I would never do that. And I looked at my father, and he just looked away. And I understood, well, I, what I began to understand was there are things we don't talk about. And we never talked about her mental illness, ever. And nobody, and this is going to be hard for some of you to understand, nobody in the country talked about mental illness. It was a shame. There was something wrong with you if you had a relative who was mentally ill. So everybody was silent about it. My father and I never talked about it. It would have been easier for us to carry on our lives if we had been able to talk about it. But we didn't. And she got worse and worse. And she thought that both of us were trying to kill her. So it was a very hard life to live. But it was very, see, sometimes if you have the strength, if you're lucky enough to have the wherewithal to make use of a thing like that, and I'm glad I was, there were some things about it that were not good for me, but there was one very good thing about that. I had to observe her very carefully. I had to watch her to see if she was telling me, about reality or telling me about her reality. If she said, look at the cracks in that wall. There's cameras in there. They're trying to take pictures of us. They tell that to a little kid. He's liable to think, well, I wonder why they're doing that. Or he, th he thinks, maybe they're not. You know, maybe, th maybe that's the way she sees things. And so I began to be a very good observer, which was very helpful for me as a writer and as an actor later in my life. So then my father moved out of nightclubs and he got a job a term contract, a seven-year contract with Warner Brothers, which sounds like a great deal, except 
in those days, they would hire actors for seven years. You couldn't work for anybody else. And you got, I think he started out at like $50 a week or two. I know, some very low salary. And it only went up a little bit each year. Meanwhile, if he was in a hit movie, they took all the money. And if they wanted to rent him out to another studio, they took everything that the other studio paid them. So the family never had any money, which, again, you can get something good out of that. But he saved up his money. I got polio when I was seven, so I had to get through that. And one day, to cheer me up, this was the, on the, imagine what he had to go through. This was the first week he started this first movie at Warner Brothers. And... It was Rhapsody in Blue, the life story of George Gershwin. And he was playing Gershwin in his first movie. And he had come from burlesque and then vaudeville. And now he's playing a serious part in a movie. There was a lot of pressure for him. And now that first week, his son comes down with polio, which in those days, there was an epidemic of polio. There was no vaccine. And kids were dying. Kids were either becoming paralyzed or dying. And some would make it through. So... My parents, having no money, had to give me the treatments, which were as hard on me as they were on them, and vice versa. They scalding hot blankets they wrapped me in and every two hours, and I'm screaming and beating the bed. And I, those poor people, you know, and they were 31, 32 years old, and their kid is, is uh, tortured by the treatment they have to give them over a period of a few months. My father, to cheer me up, brings home a dog, a cocker spaniel, and we called him Rhapsody after the movie. And I loved that dog because nobody would come visit me while I was sick. It was an epidemic. Parents wouldn't let their kids associate with anybody who would come down with polio. So the dog was my only friend for months. And he used to sit up on the bed and lick my face. And he'd let me, he was a cocker spaniel with these really long ears. So he'd let me tie his ears in knots on top of his head. (laughs) And, you know, he just looked me in the eye while I did it. (laughs) Patient, you know. So... My father saved up a few dollars because when I got better in the spring, the doctor said I needed to swim. So they bought a house with a swimming pool way out in the countryside where they could have some land to roam around on and they could afford it way far away from where he worked. First day there with the dog and I, Rhapsody, we ran around the property together, both of us wagging our tail. And the second day, we found a Chinese restaurant somewhere. We're out in the wilderness, you know. We found a Chinese restaurant. We had dinner. We brought home the leftovers. And he used to eat leftovers. He was getting real fat from the leftovers we gave him. And he dove into this dish. And a few minutes later, he was screaming in pain. He had maybe choked on a bone. We don't know what was happening to him. And my father said, let him out. They know how to take care of themselves. They'll go outside. He didn't take care of himself. He ran around the house three times, and he died on the front porch. And I felt, of course, I was eight years old. This was my best friend. And I just felt awful. And the next day, we lifted him off the brick porch, and we put him on a blanket. And we walked for a long distance through fields with shovels over our shoulders because my father thought it would be a good idea if I helped bury him, that would help me with my grief. It's not a good idea. <laughs> with every shovel full, I'm crying harder and harder. And finally, we have a hole in the ground. I drop the shovel, my hands are at my sides, and I'm sobbing. So now my father doesn't know what to do. So he, he, he looks at me, and he's got to do something now. The dog is here. The hole, we can't put him in the hole because I'll fall to pieces. So he says, maybe we should have him stuffed. This is a worse idea. 
I, I said, what, what, stuffed? He said, yeah, you know, we'll take him to a taxidermist and he'll stuff him and then you'll always be able to keep him. So I said, okay, let's stuff him, okay. So we take him to a taxidermist on Hollywood Boulevard. A Hollywood taxidermist. Now, he, now he's a plastic surgeon. So we bring the dog, we walk into this taxidermy shop, and I never saw anything like this. All these dead animals, you know, stuffed, birds on branches, and a squirrel with his, <laughs> looking really surprised, you know, and somebody's parakeet. I don't, I don't know what they were all doing. Why didn't these people take them home, you know? So we put the animal on the counter, and he looks at him, and he says to his, do you have any pictures? No, we don't, we don't have any pictures of him. He says, well, what kind of an expression did he have on his face? And we, my father and I looked at each other. What, like, what is this guy talking about? He was a dog. What? I mean, do you, can you describe a dog's expression? I mean, what, he's a, there's a cocker spaniel and he's a dog. So we said, well, he, he had a nice look on his face. He was, a, he was a nice dog. That's about the best we could come up with. So the guy says, you know, he realized he was dealing with amateurs. You know, he says, that's all right, I'll, I'll call you when he's ready. Six weeks later, the dog comes back. Now, by this time, I'd forgotten all about him, you know. <laughs> I mean, I, I wasn't thinking of him every day anyway. So... He was all covered in butcher paper. We pull off the paper, and there he is sitting on a blue velvet board with a ferocious look on his face. <laughs> and I mean, I just stared at the dog and my parents you were know, trying to make uh, the taxidermist sound good. You know, he said, well, he, he really, he never saw the dog, you know. <laughs> he didn't know what he really looked like. You know? and so we put the dog in the living room next to the fireplace. Friends would come to visit. They'd walk into the living room and they'd see the dog and they'd stop. And the dog would just be sitting there with these glass eyes staring at you. And he wouldn't move. The fact that he didn't move was the worst part about it because you thought, this animal is serious. He's going to tear me apart. So the people would stop. I saw this happen. And they would back out of the room like this. So we had to get him out of the living room because we wanted people to be able to sit down. So we put him on the front porch. This was the worst idea of all. Delivery men were afraid to make deliveries. They would leave packages on the grass. They would, you'd have to like walk all the way out down to the end of the lawn to get the package because they wouldn't come up. I don't know what happened to the dog. I, he must be in some garage someplace. How am I supposed to follow that? <laughs> <laughs> that is not fair. Though <laughs> <laughs> no, you were just fun to talk with. Thank you. I really enjoyed that. Well, you know, getting back to this interesting upbringing, Yes, it was interesting. The chorus it? girls and the, the yeah. silk and the breasts and all that. Let's uh, get back to that. <laughs> you know, you write in the book that you kind of divided the world into us, yeah. meaning the fun people. Yes. And 
civilians. Right, right. In, in show, yeah, I don't know if many people know this who are not in show business, but especially in those days, show business people called people who weren't in show business civilians. And I grew up believing that we were not only different, but we were somehow better than the civilians because we knew how to make people laugh. The civilians didn't know how to make people laugh. They knew how to tell jokes. They knew how to tell these formulas where the part that's not funny happens three times and they tell you all three times and then they tell you the funny part and then you go, ha ha, but they don't know how to be funny. Now, by the way, I don't believe this now, so you don't have to cringe. I had this kind of arrogant view of the world when I was a, a little boy. I guess it was a way of feeling I was somebody, and I felt I belonged to this brotherhood of people who knew how to be funny. And, and living on this side of the footlights with them gave me a country I belonged to. And it took me a long time to understand that I was a civilian too. And it took me a long time to, to learn how to live on the other side of the footlights as well. So how and when did that start to change? When did you start to gain a little respect for us, uh, us <laughs> civilians? <laughs> well, my real education and a birthday that I celebrate all the time is from the time I married my wife, Arlene, who really taught me how to live on the other side of the footlights. And March 15th, our anniversary, I think of as a birthday, too. It was a tremendous education for me to live with a real person who would ask me questions when I wasn't thinking like a real person and get me on the right track. Yeah, and I, the book really shows how much you respect and love your wife, and she's always been there. And I was actually surprised that you even ended up hooking up with her, you know, given oh, your given, life. Oh, given the background you know? I had, yeah. yeah, because she had all her clothes on when I met her. <laughs> <laughs> Unlike the women I had grown up with, you know. <laughs> it is interesting that I was lucky enough to see in her what a great opportunity I had. But what it, I always wonder what she saw in me, because when I look back on myself, I see this kind of self-centered person who needs to be on, needs to get laughter to know he's there, and that, that kind of thing. She tells me that I had an innocent, open face. I guess like a sandwich, I don't know. <laughs> but she liked it. You know... Uh you write in the book about your early life with Arlene and, you know, the young family and, and really struggling as an actor. You know, you worked as a doorman and a clown and at racetracks. And did you ever think, Alan, just forget it, forget it. It's not worth it. No, you know, Arlene and I were talking about this last night. We were on our way to uh, the 92nd Street Y to talk about the book there. I was trying to remember how old my father was when... Uh, when I was born and when I had polio and that kind of thing. And I realized that my father had said that he had given himself a time limit that if he didn't make it in show business, if he wasn't some kind of success in show business, and by that he didn't mean touring in burlesque or touring in, in uh, nightclubs, that he would quit. And around the same time that he started to make a living as an actor, I did too, or about the time I was about 29. Uh, not just make a living, but I was establishing myself on Broadway. But the difference between us was 
I had no time limit whatsoever. I would, I would have gone on until now, you know, just you know, looking for work. I was going to ask about that. So you didn't set a time. No, line. not at all. And she didn't set a timeline. That's amazing, say, isn't it? And her mother, and... her mother and father didn't. You know, they didn't say, uh, shouldn't you be looking for a job as a broker or something? I want to ask you about both your parents because it's so interesting. First of all, your father. There's a lot in the book about your father, his influence. Obviously, you followed in his footsteps to some degree. How, Alan, are you like and unlike him as an actor? Well, in many ways, we're different. He was extremely charismatic and extremely handsome. Now, I suppose I have some kind of charisma, and that's why people watch me on the stage. But he was more handsome than almost anybody I've ever seen. Before he was well-known... He was very often mistaken for Cary Grant, who was probably the most handsome actor who was ever on the screen. And they would ask him for his autograph, and he would sign Cary Grunt and Barry Brandt. And <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know why he didn't just sign Cary Grant. I don't, but I, I think it was funny to him to sign Cary Grunt. So uh, he had that. But he wasn't, he started out as a performer. And I think over the years, I started to see a difference between the performer strictly as a performer and the actor who tries to inhabit a character or a personality of somebody else and not just keep the audience on the edge of their seats or laughing or worried that they'll drop the juggling ball, but to put them through some kind of other theatrical experience of a different kind. And I kind of looked down for a while, early in my life, on the performer part. And I aspired to be an actor, you know. Like you had transcended something that he yeah, had That's right. In a way, I wanted yet. to improve on, what, on where he was. And it wasn't until later in my life that I began to realize that I had both of those things in me. And it was thanks to him. And some of the best things that I could offer an audience were some of the things that I learned from standing in the wings watching him and watching other performers, other comics. I want to ask about your mother, too, and you mentioned that in your remarks earlier, and just in the book, again, you get a sense of this mental illness, a constant theme in your life. You get a sense of how incredibly difficult it was for you, and yet, at the end of the book, I at least got a sense also that she did contribute to your life in a positive way. And I'm talking beyond what you said about, you know, you always had to check to see if you were talking about her reality or real reality. Yeah, yeah, but, that, but, was, that was my end of it that I learned. I learned how to observe really well. But that was, my, that was what I did. But you but got what, some positive things yeah, from her she, too. She, that's, and I'm glad you mentioned it because if I only said that she was mentally ill, that sounds like that characterizes her and limits who she was. She was much more than that. And it took me a long time to understand this because I was angry with her as a, as a little boy for not being there. I was angry with her for her behavior and I didn't understand that she didn't choose her behavior. But the thing is, in spite of that behavior, she loved me and was generous toward me and extremely encouraging. She told me, you can do anything. She told me this over and over again until I believed it. And I actually went out and did things I wasn't capable of doing because I had this copy. Well, I thank God I did them before I realized these were the words of a mad woman. <laughs> no, but the thing is, they were the words of somebody who deeply loved her boy. And I'm glad I lived long enough to understand that. 
maybe because of that, I've, I never thought of this until this minute. I think one of the most powerful themes in a play or a movie is reconciliation. It, it always touches me when the Germans and the, and the Americans or the Germans and the French trade gifts at Christmas time across the Maginot Line, or the mother and the daughter reconcile after a lifetime of, of competition. It probably moves me because I needed all those years to reconcile with my own mother and to a great extent with my father. And that's what's interesting about the book. And the it's book reconciliation. Has been, yeah. yeah, it's it's a huge theme running through. Well, you did those things that you say you probably shouldn't have done, but you went out and did them anyway. You became pretty famous, especially with MASH. And you say that after your face was on the television Every week for people, they started sort of assigning you with supernatural powers. You know, they would come up to you in the street and ask you this and ask you that. And you struggled, as you say, to be famous and ordinary at the same time. Give us some examples of that struggle of being famous and uh, trying well, to be ordinary I, at the same well, time. Well, I wanted to be, I mean, I was already beginning to learn how to be a civilian and I wanted to stay a civilian. I didn't want to play the role of the star who's glad to take bows and glad to get uh, screaming crowds. I had seen my father go through fame, and he was very famous when I was small. And one night on Hollywood Boulevard, we were walking down the boulevard, and a girl about 16 came up behind him and said, you son of a bitch, and hit him in the back with her fist. And my parents, I was shocked, I was maybe nine years old, and my parents said, you know, sometimes people can't handle it when they see somebody they've seen on the movie screen. And I'm glad they were able to explain it to me a little bit, but it was really shocking to me. Then when I got famous, when MASH hit, I didn't have anybody attack me like that, but I noticed that people were out of control in the presence of somebody who they had only seen on a screen. I have this cockeyed theory that, um, it's not backed up by any facts, that maybe they watch these images on the screen with the same part of their brain that they dream with, and it's like somebody has stepped out of their dreams and it's scary to them or disorienting in some way. One guy reached out to shake my hand. He was at a dinner table and I guess involuntarily his muscles tightened and he pulled me toward him and I fell over the table. <laughs> I mean, the people get out of control. They'd grab you and couldn't get away very, with a very strong grip and they'd say, hey, Fred, look at this. And, and you're this, you know. You're... <laughs> I got the... It was so difficult. When MASH got popular, was so popular, that it was hard to go out in the street. And it was such a bombardment of people after me that I wouldn't have uh, not just bad dreams, but they were night terrors. And I, I'd wake up and I'd see somebody in the room trying to kill me. Uh, <laughs> It sounded like my mother. <laughs> Does that, do you still struggle with that no, today? I swear to God, yeah. they were there. No. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. What? So... Does that still happen today? People pulling you over in restaurants? No, uh, people have gotten it's used calmed to down. me. Yeah, no, they're very kind to me now. I guess they think I'm this feeble old guy or something. I don't know. <laughs> but they're very uh, courteous to me. I'm very touched by that. One last question for you about going back to the book. In the process of the book, writing it, what did you discover about yourself that you hadn't discovered before? In the middle of writing the book, I did understand something about how I felt about my mother that really surprised me. I had known for a long time 
that I had been angry with her because of her illness, because I didn't understand her illness when I was younger. And I had known for a long time that I had understood finally that she was ill and didn't mean to be ill. You know, so I had gotten that. But something happened while I was writing the book that surprised me. I realized that I hadn't spent much time learning about her illness, in spite of the fact that I was very interested in science. I had avoided reading about schizophrenia because I think it scared me. I, it was unpleasant to me. It made me remember difficult things. So I went back to a scientist who I had interviewed in Iceland, and I visited him, and he told me about his brother, who is schizophrenic. And it was because of his brother that he started doing these groundbreaking studies in genetics and isolated a gene that's associated with schizophrenia. And he told me that he had this feeling of discomfort when he visited his brother in the hospital. And he said, you know, members of the family, we all are scared that because we're part of that family, that somehow we're like that too, and it makes us uncomfortable. And I understood a little bit more about my feelings as he talked to me. Kari Stephenson, his name is. And right at that same time, when I started to get a little braver about reading more about schizophrenia, I read an article in the, the journal Nature that was so eye-opening to me. It really made me understand a lot about both of us. And it was this scientist saying that his research team had shown that when you're schizophrenic and you have a hallucination, you see things that aren't there. My mother saw the devil in the bedroom and she never slept in the bedroom. She saw the devil in the kitchen and she never cooked in the kitchen. She lived on pizza and slept on the couch. And these hallucinations are extremely vivid. And very often they're auditory hallucinations. But these hallucinations, this doctor in nature said, occur in a part of the brain of the schizophrenic and there's a chemical reaction that takes place in that part of the brain that is exactly the same as what happens to us when we have a nightmare. So in a flash, I had this moment of realization that I not only could realize that she was going through something painful for her, but I had gone through it too. I knew now what it felt like for her to be in this terrifying position where you know your life is in danger. And you do know that in the dream. Even if you know it's a dream at the time, you know you're in a terrifying situation. But the difference was I could wake up from those dreams and she never would wake up from them. And I had a tremendous amount of compassion for her. And that was because Kari gave me the nerve to read more about it. And then just getting more facts helped me to get more understanding. It opens up a whole reservoir of sympathy that you probably hadn't been able to tap into right, before. Right, right. Well, one last question for you about your contemporary career. So is the election on the West Wing rigged? <laughs> Do the writers know who's going to win and we have to wait? It's just like in real life. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> Uh, the, uh, they may know, but they're not telling anybody. They're not telling you? No, they're not telling us. They're not te even their close friends they're not telling, which I think is a great disinformation thing. They ought to run a country, you know. <laughs> they really see, are convincing that, that, gee, we don't know who's going to win. I find that hard to believe. But, 
but they're pretty convincing. Well, actually, we have one question from the audience about the West Wing, so let's start with that one. You and Jimmy Smits were fantastic in the West Wing presidential debate. How did you prepare for that? It was a very difficult thing to work on. We, there was a script, and we stuck to the script, but first we had to learn it, and it's very dense material, and we didn't have much time to rehearse it. And we not only didn't have much time to rehearse it, but if you were doing it on, on Broadway, after you rehearsed it, you'd do previews and you'd try it out in front of an audience and you'd get really familiar with it. We rehearsed it for a short amount of time and then got up in front of 10 million people and did it. So it was a very exciting time, but we just worked day and night on that for not very long, for about less than two weeks, 10 days or less, and it was really a short time. This is a good question. Talk about writing the last episode of MASH. Oh, all the writers wanted to be in on it. I collaborated with, uh, I think, eight other writers. I think I laid out the story, and then we divided it up into eight parts, and I would work with each of them on each of the parts. So I was in on all of it, and everybody was in on something. And it kept getting longer and longer, and we only meant it to be a two-hour thing you'd see on television, but commercials... That's not anywhere near two hours. Now, this is interesting. How, how many commercials you watch? The movie that we gave CBS was two hours long. It played for two and a half hours. So that's a half an hour of commercials. And I think they show even more now. But that's okay, because they're the ones that are, that's the entertaining part now. There's a story, actually, about, uh, about the last episode of MASH and how you knew that there was a sense that just everyone in the country was watching this. Tell us that story. I, I mean, of course we all knew how popular the show was by that point, but I didn't know it was popular to this extent. We watched the movie at the studio because we wanted to see it on a big screen. And as we were leaving the studio to go to a restaurant to celebrate, the rest of the country was just starting to watch it on television. And as we drove down the street, there was an eerie feeling because this was... This was a time when the streets were usually very crowded, people on the way to dinner. The streets were entirely empty, maybe one or two cars. And suddenly we realized they're home watching us. It was a very strange feeling because about half the country watched the same program at the same time. There was a story about the New York City oh, septic yeah, in, in system New York too, City, right? In New York City, every time a commercial came on, all the toilets in New York flushed at the same time. And the next day, they said that they almost had a water crisis at the waterworks. And, I, and none of us ever expected such a high compliment as that. Well, we have a couple students in the audience tonight, a group of students in the audience tonight. So a few questions asking for advice about writing narratives on a turning point in your life. So basically, I'm writing a memoir in my class. Where do I begin writing this narrative about a, a turning point in my life? Okay, I'll tell you some things that Frank McCourt told me, and they're very helpful. He said, think of an image. And Roger Rosenblatt says this too, that most good writing begins with a, a visual image, an image that strikes you as one you can't take your eyes off inside your head. You just keep seeing that image and it's something central to the experience that you think you want to write about and work from that image. Get the reader to see that and then see what it means to you. Frank said a really interesting thing about memoirs. He said it's not just telling 
your stories. He said, everybody has stories to tell. What's the meaning of the stories? What does it add up to for you? What do these stories mean to you? If you can find out the meaning, then you've got something worth reading and it'll have depth to it. And he says, just keep scribbling, just keep writing until stuff comes out. This is something I have understood for a long time, and it's about writing in general, that you got to let it pour out of you. Here's what I think about writing. I think that you have to go through two separate phases. There's a subjective phase and an objective phase. A phase where, on the one hand, you're not editing yourself at all. You say everything that you can think of about this, whatever it is, and it doesn't matter how disjointed it is. Then you go through a phase, and you, by the way, you must not let yourself think editorially at all during that phase. You don't cross anything out. Some people benefit by saying it into a tape recorder and disciplining themselves not to go back and listen to it until they have it all out because the whole idea is to get a flow going and not interrupt the flow. Then you become ruthlessly editorial when you go into the next phase and you cut out all the junk. And then you're shocked at how many gold nuggets you have there. You see things you don't remember putting down. And then you have to make transitions among all those good things. And that's when you have to go back into the subjective phase again. And you keep shuttling back and forth. But you can't do one while you're doing the other. When you're in the subjective phase, you can't edit yourself. And when you're in the objective phase, you can't say, oh, but I love that. You, that's when you have to kill all your darlings, as Faulkner said. And then he said, kill all your darlings, dot, 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 all your darlings. <laughs> and the reason they're your darlings, I think, is because they stick out. And you don't want the stuff that sticks out. You want the stuff that's seamless, that seems like it's there because it grew there. It's naturally there. I read someplace, but I haven't been able to find the uh, piece of writing by Freud in which he talked about this in the following way. He said, it's as though you're a shepherd guarding a cave that has a lot of goats in it. And every morning you move back the stone and you let the goats out for the day. But just in case there's anybody out there throwing rocks at your goats, you let the weak ones out first, the ones that aren't quite that valuable to you. And when the flow starts getting going, then you let out the stronger ones. And that's like the flow of ideas. And it's an associative process, I find. So when the first one comes out, that draws the next one out. So that's why I think there are no bad ideas, because even if it doesn't turn out to be a great idea in itself, associatively, it leads to the next one. And little by little, you're drawing stuff up from deep down in the well of your unconscious. And that's where the real work has been going on at a level you can't begin to fathom. You don't know until you get it out in this associative process. And that's where the gold is, way down there. And if you can get in touch with that and get that flow going and write often enough so that the flow is ready to come out all the time. When things are ready to come out, then you got to let them out wherever you are. Even if you're in a crowded place or in a, on an airplane, just let them out. Write it down and don't judge it later judge it. That's my five-minute writing course. Well, here's a good one for us to end on. What was your favorite role ever and why? 
tonight. <laughs> because of you. Okay, second favorite. <laughs> <laughs> don't be so modest. No, I've had a good time with you, and I've had a good time with these folks, too. I don't have a favorite part. I tend to love whatever I'm doing, and then I tend to forget about it, no matter how much I loved it. And there are things that I've done where I've thought, boy, I wonder if I'll miss this when I stop doing it. And I never do. Even with MASH? Yeah, I didn't miss it. I loved it. I had the best time. And I still love the people, and we get together and, and have fun together. But I want to be doing what I, whatever I'm doing now. It's surprising to me that I wrote a memoir because I don't think about the past. And yet I have very vivid memories when I, when I want to call them up. So I don't really have much of an answer. You should have picked a different thing to close on. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been great to talk to you. And again, Alan Alda, actor and author of Never Have You Dog Stuff and Other Things I've Learned. Writers on a New England Stage is a partnership between the Music Hall and New Hampshire Public Radio in collaboration with River Run Books. And I want to thank executive producer and live stage presentation director Patricia Lynch, New Hampshire Public Radio executive producer Keith Shields, musical director Bob Lord, our house band Dreadnought, stage manager Jana Morris, lighting designer Bruce Morris, technical director Quentin Stockwell, and sound engineer Dean Clegg of SRC Sound. And of course, of course, thanks to our very special guest, Alan Alda. Thank you. Lord, thank you. Thank you very much.